Amen. Something to remember as we have had a momentous week, decisions made in, uh, in our country, important weekend, a celebration of I think 239, my math may not be great, 239 years of independence. My neighbors were celebrating till late into the night uh, with their firework shows. Uh, tonight is uh, the U.S. women's soccer team is in the uh, finals of the uh, World Cup tonight at 7. But the most important thing that has happened this weekend is that God's people have gathered to bow their knees and to lift their eyes and to remember that He is God and He alone reigns. As we gather this morning and turn our hearts toward God's Word, we are working our way through 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3 in the last few verses in that chapter, 18 to 22. Uh, it always interests me as we walk through God's Word how how often it speaks immediately to where we are. And we know that Peter has been writing to a church that is suffering, to a church that has been going through difficult times in the culture in which it found itself. The difficulties that it faced, the persecutions that came upon them. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, I would invite you to turn there with me. Hear then the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patient waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from your body, but as appeal an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and who is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. Pray with me. Father, we gather into your presence. Uh, Lord, the Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to be in our midst and to speak your word in power. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Bring our hearts to a peace that Jesus reigns, that you are good, and that you are still in control. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We read this passage, and I admit some passages are easier to preach than others. We come to a passage like this, and as Peter is writing to this church and, and, and encouraging them in the midst of the difficulties that they're facing, and encouraging them in, in their salvation that is in Christ and is secure, being kept in heaven for them, even though their faith is being tried and tested and, and, and strengthened in the midst of all that they're going through, that God still reigns. Now, Peter is writing to them in the context of all of this, and, and he brings up Noah's Ark. I mean, as I'm reading through this at first blush, you, you have to ask the question, why is he bringing up Noah's Ark uh, to the church that is going through all these things in the midst of these difficulties? And it's not obvious at first glance, at least it wasn't for me as I go through the text again and wrestling with some of the things that he says here, but it seems to me that he is making a comparison, that he's making a comparison between the times of Noah the times that Noah found himself before the flood, as he preached righteousness, as he lived in a world that was in, a, in, in moral chaos, and the times in which the church was finding itself in. 
Before the flood water came, there was a flood of sin and rebellion against God. In the times of Noah, before God acted and and the flood did come, there was a flood of sin and rebellion that was in the world that that Noah found himself in the midst of and having to build his ark and to try to proclaim righteousness and stand for righteousness in the midst of, of this dissipation, this moral chaos that he found himself in. Under your first point in your bulletin, I put Genesis 6, 5. When, when the Genesis accounts, when God explains why the flood happened, why the, the judgment fell the way that it did, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. In other words, things were bad. There was a full-scale moral rebellion against God's government. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This young church that Peter is writing to, it's about 30 years old. It's been around for a little while, and actually in those first 30 years, it, it didn't have too bad of a time. It, 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 it's uh, only experienced mild persecution. It was still not clear, you know, who the Christians were and the, the Jews and the Romans both thought it was just a sect of, of, of Judaism and as a sect of Judaism it was tolerated for a period of time. But as the time went on, as the decades went on, and about the time that Peter's writing, about 30 years in, they start to figure out that, that Christianity is not a sect of Judaism. That it's something now completely different, something that the Jews themselves are beginning to persecute. And the Romans don't like new religions. And so persecution began to intensify. As we move toward the time of Nero, things get worse. It goes from bad to worse. The Roman world in which they lived was a world that was sinful and rebellious in itself. It was not a democracy. And as we look at the world we live in and you look at the Roman world, things were very bad under Rome in terms of morally, in terms of what they allowed, things that were legal and things that they let go on in their midst that they tolerated. They not only tolerated great sin in the Roman Empire and the way that they functioned as a totalitarian regime on the world, but they are also intolerant of righteousness in many of its forms. And so the church begins to come under an intensifying persecution from Jews and Gentiles alike because the Roman world was a flood of sin and rebellion. And Chapter 4, just a few verses ahead of what we're looking at today in verse 4 of chapter 4, Peter goes on to say that they are surprised, that is the, the culture that we live in, they are surprised when you do not join them in this flood of debauchery. And there's that word flood, and again it throws back this image of the time of Noah and of the flood and the world around us is surprised when you don't join them in this flood of debauchery, the flood of debauchery that preceded the flood of water in judgment. And because they are surprised that you don't join in, it says they malign you. Malign there means to say bad things about you, right? To abuse you verbally and to put you down and to put you out and to marginalize you. And so the church is beginning to suffer fiery trials. Peter talks about it from chapter 1 to the end. The fiery trials that the church is beginning to undergo. Verbal abuse, the revoking of their rights. Judaism had rights. And when it became clear that they were not part of Judaism, their rights began to be revoked. Christianity became illegal. And then there was all kinds of physical persecution and abuse and confiscation of things that began to take place. We know that Peter himself is ultimately executed 
by the Romans. So persecution is intensifying. And we're told in verse 20, as he's comparing the time of Peter, the time of the church at the time of Pe- as Peter is writing to the church, he's comparing Noah's time before the flood to their time, to our time, before judgment, God's judgment falls again. And so in verse 20, he compares it saying, you know, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This image of God waiting patiently while the ark is built, until the time is right, until he is ready. And so this image of God waiting, in other words, God let it go on for a period of time until the ark was complete and righteousness had been preached and salvation had been offered and the ark was ready. God waits patiently. And Peter wants to give the suffering church this perspective of hope by reminding them of the days of Noah when he too stood in the flood of moral chaos and God waited and didn't act until the time was right. And he wants us to see, just as in the days of Noah, that God still reigned, that God sat on his throne still, that he was in control. And though it may not have looked like it, and though things were going from bad to worse to worse, even in the times of Noah, at the very bottom of this period of human history, God reigned. He had not lost control. It was not out of his sovereign control. But he waited patiently. And so in 2 Peter 3, this is, I don't think, made it to your bulletin, but 2 Peter, Peter writes another letter. There are several things in there that pick up on themes in his first letter. In 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 11, he says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, why isn't God doing something? Why isn't God acting in righteousness and in judgment? This is a question repeated throughout the entire book of Habakkuk. His Habakkuk standing on the ramparts. God, when are you going to do something? The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient. He's patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance until the full number is brought in. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and be dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed for what they are. That day, he says, is coming. And since all of these things are like this, and judgment is coming and they will be dissolved, what sort of people ought you and I to be? And that's the question Peter has been bringing back up again and again. All right, this is the culture we live in. Okay, things are bad and it's intensifying and we do suffer. You know, in the midst of all of this, who are we supposed to be? What kind of people are we as followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, a people of shalom, a people of grace, a people of gospel, right? A light in the darkness. Those who are offering hope, those who are building an ark, right? Those who are building the ark of salvation and offering people entrance. He introduces in verse 18 the suffering of Christ. But he goes on in verses 19 and 20 to say some pretty ambiguous things. I don't know about you. Martin Luther reading this passage says that 
is probably the most ambiguous passage in the New Testament. He's like, I'm not sure what Peter means. And so I'm in good company if I say I'm not positive what Peter means either. In verses 19 and 20, when he says that Jesus then, being put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits who are in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It's a little bit confusing as we try to understand who he's talking about. What does he mean that, that Jesus was put to death in the spirit, the same spirit through whom he went to proclaim to the spirits who are now in prison back in the days of Noah? What is it that he proclaimed? It doesn't say. Did he proclaim his victory to the spirits who are defeated and in prison? Does he proclaim the gospel? And if he does, when and how does he do it exactly? Who are these spirits? Why is it only people in Noah's day? Why is, he, why is it that he, that he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison who didn't obey in the time of Noah? Why in Noah's day? I'll give you a couple of thoughts about this, a, a view that I reject that is the, the temptation that some have faced as they've looked at this, <clears throat> trying to understand it. The first option is some people looking at it think it sounds like a second chance for salvation. When you read it, it says that Jesus being put to death in the body and the spirit, he went to those who were already dead and imprisoned, those who had already died, and he preached to them. And, and he offered a second chance at salvation. It's attractive in some ways that <clears throat> for those that, that reject and are rebellious in this life, that it's okay, live it up, do what you want. You know, whatever, the day's coming, well, you'll get a second chance. Jesus will come to you as a spirit in prison and give you the chance to repent once you know and see, and it's no longer by faith but by sight, that you can be saved. There are a number of problems with this through the passage. Um, Why is it only people in Noah's time who get a second chance? Why doesn't he say he went to all the people? Why doesn't he go say, why does he just go to the people of Noah? And I believe the answer there is that he's actually, as I said, using this picture of the time of Noah as a comparison and a picture for us to understand our own time. And he talks about the preaching that went on in the times of Noah as a picture of the preaching that ought to go now. And that's why he only, he's only addresses these people in the time of Noah. But, but more than some of the other problems in that text is that, that that interpretation is out of sync with the rest of Scripture. The scripture gives no indication that there will be a second chance at salvation. In fact, the entire tenor of scripture, Old Testament and New, militates against the idea that there will be another chance. And while I could pile up verses, I simply have the one I put in the bulletin there under the second point, Hebrews chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Not after that comes the opportunity for sin. It, it, that would be the same thing as saying there's a universal salvation. For whoever rejected him in this life, when you're in prison, you get that parable of Lazarus and the poor man who sat at his gate and Lazarus ignored him. And it says that day when the great gulf is, 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 is fixed and Lazarus realizes his mistake and he says, please go and tell my brothers, go and tell my family. In other words, the spirit in prison knows he's in prison. It's not good. He wants very much to get out. He wants very much for anybody else who would end up in this position to get out and he's pleading that that Lazarus could go and tell his family or someone would go 
And to say that to offer salvation to those who are in prison after is to almost proclaim a universal salvation. To say everybody's going to be saved then. Anybody in that position. But it's appointed for men to die once and after that to face judgment. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And that we should not neglect nor put off putting our trust in Christ. And so the second option, and let me just kind of put this out of the way, is, is the way I believe it's understood. It was put forth by Augustine. I think it is, it fits the text, which is just using the time of Noah as a pattern or a comparison to the time of the church in the days of Peter, which I think is a comparison for the days of the church right now. And what we are beginning to experience, just as they were beginning to experience it. So when it says in verse 18 that he was made alive, uh, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He says, and then he goes back to the comparison. It's the same spirit in which he proclaimed to the spirits who are in prison. They're in prison now because they formally, didn't diso- they dis- formally disobeyed in the time of Noah. Right now, this is, I hope you get confused and follow me as I try to do this. I was wrestling with this all week. How do I, it's a confusing passage, and when I try to explain it, I'm going to be confusing. And so, it's, it's basically saying this, that in the times of Noah, the spirit of Christ is the one who has always preached righteousness and salvation. And I put in there, right under this text, um, for you, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. I, I went ahead and copied it in. You can look back. In chapter 1, it says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glory. And so what are you saying? Is this salvation that the prophets prophesied, understanding Christ and his coming, he said it was the spirit of Christ in the prophets that proclaimed the gospel that proclaimed salvation, that, that brought forth righteousness in the times past. There was no other spirit. The spirit that we, that by whom we preach the gospel now is the same spirit by whom the prophets of old preached the gospel. And I don't believe the text is saying Jesus went after he died. He went back and preached the spirits in prison. What it's saying is that he was put to death in the spirit, that the spirit of Christ is the same one who preached through Noah in the days of Noah, to the people who were disobedient then. The same spirit of gospel and proclamation that is at work in us as was working in, in Noah's days. Right? If that makes sense. So Noah is the preacher of righteousness. The spirit of Christ is the one in him pointing him to this salvation, leading him to build the ark, to invite people to believe, invite people out of this flood of dissipation and rebellion to righteousness. It's the spirit of Christ in him, and they disobeyed. And that's why they are the spirits who are now in prison. Right? So he doesn't go to, he doesn't go to preach now to them. He preached then to the spirits who are now in prison because they disobeyed when the gospel was preached to them in their own time. They did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. And so they are in prison because they rejected the preaching of Noah, who was preaching by the Spirit of Christ the same hope and salvation that we hope in. We live in times like Noah, and God waits patiently while we proclaim the gospel by the Spirit of Christ. 
Woven throughout this passage then is the ark. And as he's making this comparison to the times of Noah and the the times of the church and the church is living in. And so there's a flood of dissipation that precedes judgment. And so Noah's building the ark and God is waiting patiently. And he says, we're in a very similar situation. God is waiting patiently. And in a sense, we are, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And the gospel through the church is the ark of salvation. Christ is the ark of salvation and faith in him. And so through the passage he's weaving, just as we live in times like Noah did, we also have an ark. God is waiting patiently while the ark is filled, so to speak. God is waiting patiently while the gospel is proclaimed and the, and the full number come in. He is not... Slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That God is bringing in the full number into the ark before the great day of the Lord, he says, comes. And so woven through this passage is this description of the ark. It's not made of gopher wood. right? It's made of the work of Christ. The hope of salvation now is not an ark of wood that we can enter into, but it's an ark of salvation in the person of Christ that we can enter into by faith. So he begins in verse 18 with the sufferings of Christ. He also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And he ends in verses 21 and 22 with the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone on into heaven is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This beautiful picture of the full work of Christ from his sufferings and his death to his resurrection to his ascension to the right hand of the Father to the fact that he sits even now at the right hand of God and the chair at the right hand of God is a throne where he reigns with the Father and the Son And the Holy Spirit over the world, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and he continues to reign. This is the picture. He reigned in the time of Noah and he reigns in the time of the church today. We're told that Christ also suffered. Also points back to what he has been saying to the church. It's like that therefore. that looks back to what he's been saying. Christ also suffered. Well, who else suffered? Well, we are. If you look at verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Right? And the verse that leads into this one, 17, he said, it's better to suffer for what's doing good if it should be God's will. Right? If it should be God's will. And so it is, in some real way, God's will that he wait patiently. And he doesn't act. Until his timing is right, until the full number come in, until his work is done, until the ark is built. He says that suffering is the way of Christ. That as we suffer, he says, Christ also suffered. Suffering is the way of Christ and the will of God. And in chapter 4, verse 12, he's going to go on to say, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. My friends, sometimes we act so surprised. Every time something doesn't go our way, every time, every time something isn't the way we think that it should be, every time we lose a battle, every time there's a defeat, every time we're pushed around, every time the government, which is not full of Christians per se, we are surprised. 
And we act surprised. And this is where I think, as Peter says, as we live in the midst of, of this time as it was in the time of Noah. In other words, this is the paradigm we always live under. Like in the times of Noah, we live in it today. It's, it's the already but the not yet where Christ has come. He has established his church. He is building his church. The day will come when he will return in power and glory and take his church to himself. He will establish his kingdom. He says that is already established that that's going to happen. Christ is already raised. He's already at the right hand of the Father. He will come back. But not yet. But not yet. God is waiting patiently, not only for the full number of come, to come in, but for the full level of wickedness to be reached before he acts. And we all know the picture of the New Testament doesn't end. You know, it gets worse before it gets better. We are not to be surprised at the fiery trials. We are not to be surprised that the world doesn't agree with us. We're not to be surprised that it doesn't do what we want it to do and act like we want it to act. They don't follow Christ. They don't know him. They don't love him. Christ also suffered. So we're not to be surprised when we suffer. For it is the way of Christ. He suffered once. A perfect and final, accomplished and full salvation. He appeared once, Hebrew 9.26 in your bolt, and he appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He suffered once for sins, the passage says. Right? Just as we read in Hebrews 9, he says he was suffered once at the end of the age to put away sin. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, Peter said back in chapter 2. And he keeps saying that Christ is the one who has dealt with the moral chaos that not only is out there but is in here. That it's Christ himself who bore in his own body the moral chaos and the consequences and the penalty and the judgment due to our rebellion and sin in his own body. To put it away. The righteous one for the unrighteous. Let me ask you, who are the unrighteous? In one breath, I think we know the right answer, but in another way, sometimes it feels like we go to the window of the church and we look out, and we look out there at the unrighteous, right? The ones who, you know, it's coming on, and we we stand in that place and look for the unrighteous out there. But Peter is talking about us who are included in Christ. The righteous one died For the unrighteous ones who have put their faith in him and trusted him and had their sin put away because of what he has done. We are the unrighteous ones, saved by grace, saved by faith, not by anything that we have done, not because we are good, not because we are smart, not because we morally saw all that was wrong in the world and and righteously put ourselves forth. No, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ made us alive, gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. He plucked us out by his mercy and his grace. The righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us to God like an ark of salvation to carry us through the sea of our own sin to bring us to God safely through the judgment. So let me just touch on a few things as we apply this, as we think about this, is is this picture that that Peter wants us to have of who Christ is and what he has done. 
as a paradigm for our own suffering, right? as, the, as an example for us to follow. And a church who amazingly is the church really through all the ages. Strangers in the world. So let me just touch on a few things. And first, the suffering of Christ is not the end of the story. Right? And what Peter wants the church to see, and what is the, the resounding note through the New Testament, because you know, preaching these kind of things can be very depressing. Right? When we see these things are hard to hear, they are the reality. It's the paradigm in which we live in. We live between the already, not yet. We wait for his return, and we know the world is not the way that it should be. That's the paradigm we always live in, every day, until he comes again. But he says that's not the full story. That the, the suffering Christ is also the conquering and reigning Christ. The suffering Christ is also the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The suffering Christ is the one described in 21 and 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father with all angels and all authorities and all powers having been subjected to him. He has overcome the world. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And he reigns over his earth, over the world. Every angelic power, every authority, whether it's in America or in Russia, whether it's in ISIS and their leadership, or the leaders in Egypt or Afghanistan or the leaders in England or whatever it is, all angels, all authorities, all powers have been submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns over all the earth in power. He waits patiently. But he is in charge and he is in control. And the world is accountable to him. And this is why Peter reminds suffering Christians of the time before the flood. The power of evil was great and it was growing and it seemed that the number of believers was small and Peter reminds them, but God was in control. He was waiting patiently. It may not have looked like it. It may not have felt like it. It may not have seemed like it at the time. But God was in control. He had not relinquished the reins. He waited patiently for the ark to be built, for righteousness and salvation to be proclaimed by the Spirit of Christ to that generation. And even now, patient, God is patient. He's patient while the church is built. You know the church is being built around the world? You know that there are tens of thousands every day coming to Christ in parts of the world, maybe not in America anymore, but in South America, in Africa, in China, in East Asia, in places like that, the church is being built and it's going forward. It's growing and it's strong. Do you know Africa sending missionaries to America? He is patient while the church is being built and the gospel is proclaimed to every creature that is under heaven and it goes forth. And while righteousness and the hope of salvation are proclaimed, we wait too. But here's the second thing. Not only is the risen Christ reigning and in control right now, building his church, his ark of salvation, but secondly is this. It is true that God's patience will not last forever. And that's part of the picture of Noah, isn't it, in those days? God waited patiently, but he didn't wait forever. He didn't wait forever. What Peter is trying to tell us is on that great day of the Lord's coming, when his patience is exhausted, the only safe place to be is in the ark. 
Right? Isn't, that the, isn't that the message? Where the only safe place to be is in the ark on that day. And he's saying that P, to Peter that we live in those days. And we need to bring them in one and two at a time. We need to bring them in as the gospel is proclaimed because the only safe place to be is in the ark. Philippians 3, 8, 9, it's there in your bulletin under the last point. It says that I, Paul says this, that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, not having earned it, not having deserved it, but that which is through faith in Christ by trust in his. He says, I want to be found in Christ, just like Noah was found in the ark. I want to be found in Christ, the only safe place to be on that day when the patience of God runs out. And so the question this morning is, if you have not put your faith in Christ, see, looking at the ark and believing that there is an ark isn't enough. There are those who saw Noah building the ark and they believed in the ark. They might have even thought the ark would be a great way of salvation should there be a flood. They may even said, I might get in the ark if there is a flood. But it's not the same as being in the ark. It's not the same as crawling inside. It's not the same as bowing our knee to Christ and trusting in Him, to gain Him and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but only that which comes through faith in Christ. Trust Him as your Savior and your King to wash away our sin and to bring you, He says, that He did all of this to bring you to God, to bring you safely through the flood to the presence of God. So not only is Christ reigning and the only safe place to be in the ark, but as you and I wait, a couple of thoughts. Peter has already said it. We've developed it in previous sermons. But it's one of these things that is really hard for you and I to keep remembering. You know, and it's this. You and I are strangers and aliens in this world. It is so hard to remember that. Peter opens his letter that way, if you remember. You know, he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and he says it again later in chapter 1, we're strangers and aliens in the world. But we, we don't think that way. We don't think like strangers. We don't think like aliens. We don't think like residents of another country, of another kingdom, with a priority then of things that we are to be about. We have struggles with this. Why? This world is not our home. And just as... Jesus before us suffered rejection and persecution. The Bible says again and again, anyone who will live a righteous life in Christ will be persecuted. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because the prophets were persecuted before you. Christ was persecuted before you. This is the way of the cross and the will of God as he waits patiently as in the days of Noah. And so the world is not our home, but as hard as it is to hear, this includes the United States of America. I love my country, and I am a great patriot, but I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, and then an American. And we say God and country, and I say God, country. Just as a Christian in India would say God, and I hope he would say country. Because our hope is not in our country. Our hope is not in our president. It's not in our legislators. It's not in our laws. It's not in what they do or they don't do or ways that they conform or don't conform. Our hope is not there. The hope in the scripture again and again is, my friends, you are strangers and aliens, even here in America, right? And, and this is not our home. And our hope is not here. And even as in the days of Noah, it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
And he has given us eyes to see and hearts to love him and lives that are being changed to be like Christ, but we live in the midst of a dark and dying world. How do we respond when the world disappoints us? While God is waiting patiently, how do we wait? Are we able to wait patiently to enter into his patience, to enter into his perspective as Christ entrusted himself to the one who judges justly? How do we wait? As Peter said a moment ago, he said, what sort of people ought you to be in this context? Lives of godliness and holiness. If the church is full of anger, if the church is full of vitriol, if we are lashing out, if we are cursing rather than blessing, if we are reviling in return rather than blessing, right? Isn't that the context? We looked at it as disjointed now and and separated. But if you go back to the rest of this chapter that we've been studying, Peter says in 14 and 15, if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed but have no fear of them. Christian, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, whoever they may be. Whether it's your government or your neighbor, whether it's your boss or your legislator or your judiciary or whoever it is, have no fear of them and don't be troubled. That's a hard word to us because we're not patient. We are afraid. But the word of Peter is, your God reigns. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. And then he goes on. Not only that, he says, you know, don't be full of fear and anger and reviling and don't turn and and be a cornered. In verse 15, he goes on and says, have no fear of them, right? Don't be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ. The Lord is holy. He reigns. He is king. Always then be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. Yes, we should be prepared. Yes, we should buckle down and get our nose in our Bible and know it and love it and be able to, 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 to speak it into the culture and the situation. But he says, yet do this, end of 15, with gentleness and respect. He is talking about a church suffering under the Roman Empire, being persecuted verbally, their rights being taken away, physically beaten, things confiscated, ultimately put to death. And Peter says, do not fear them. And when you answer them, do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 2.23, it says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, the God who is still in control and who reigns, who is waiting patiently and who calls us to enter into his patience and his graciousness. It's a hard thing but we are the fragrance of Christ. Lights in the darkness, the fragrance of Christ among those who are perishing and those who are being saved and the fragrance of Christ. He says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. Our message is Christ is the ark of salvation. 
There is hope. There is a way. This is our message. This is our gospel. As we suffer, we keep our eyes on Him who suffered before us, who conquered and who reigns. We remember Romans 8, after he says that the world has been subjected and we've been subjected and we, the world groans and we groan and the suffering that we endure, this light and momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. And he gets to the end of Romans 8 and he says, and so who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation that we experience in the Roman Empire or distress over things that don't go our way or troubled times will persecution that comes upon us by our government or anybody else our neighbors or our bosses or famine or nakedness or danger or even the threat of our own life the sword he says no in all of these things you and I are more more than conquerors through Christ who loves us Jesus says do not let your hearts be troubled I have overcome the world I won I won. I reign. Are you more than a conqueror today? Are you free to be God's person of shalom in the midst of crisis? When it's not the way that it's supposed to be. Are you a person of gospel and salvation, of grace and shalom? Do you have your eyes on the one who is seated at the right hand of the Almighty? under whom all authority and all power has been submitted to Jesus, who is the soon coming King. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that it is hard. We, live, we are a people of unclean lips, and we live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And our eyes see the Lord of glory. We are undone. Father, it is hard in times... We long to see your righteousness revealed and justice prevail. And yet you wait. Father, help us to wait and to enter into your patience. And help us not to revile when we are reviled. To not return evil with evil. To bless and to curse not. To give answer with respect and gentleness. Let us be the fragrance of Christ in a world that so desperately needs an ark of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.